Today's Old, Just, Old Testament lesson comes from Genesis 37, 1 through 8, and then 15 through 28. Jacob lived in the land of Canaan, where his father was an immigrant. This is the account of Jacob's descendants. Joseph was 17 years old and tended the flock with his brothers. While he was helping the sons of Billah and Silpah, his father's wives, Joseph told their father unflattering things about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was born when Jacob was old. Jacob had made for him a long robe. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of his brothers, they hated him and couldn't even talk nicely to him. Joseph had a dream and told it to his brothers, which made them hate him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. When we were binding stalks of grain in the field, my stock got up and stood upright, while your stocks gathered around it and bowed down to my stock. His brothers said, his brothers said to him, will you really be our king and rule over us? So they hated him even more because of the dreams he told them. He came to Sechem, gosh, he came to Sechem, and a man found him wandering in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? Joseph said, I'm looking for my brothers. Tell me, where are they tending the sheep? The man said, they left here. I heard them saying, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. They saw Joseph in the distance before he got close to them, and they plotted to kill him. The brothers said to each other, here comes the big dreamer. Come on now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns, and we'll say a wild animal devoured him. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard what they said, he saved them from them, telling them, let's not take his life. Reuben said, said to them, don't spill his blood. Throw him into, this, into the desert cistern, cistern and, but don't lay a hand on him. He intended to save Joseph from them and take him back to his father. When Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's long robe, took him and threw him into the cistern, an empty cistern with no water in it. When they sat down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with camels carrying sweet resin, medicinal resin, and fragrant resin on their way down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and hide his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not harm him because he's our brother, he's family. His brothers agreed. When some Midianite tra traders passed by, they pulled Joseph up out of the cistern. They sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver and they brought Joseph to Egypt. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jessica. And let's pray together. Lord God, we are grateful to be in this place today. And we pray that you would send your spirit upon us as we hear your word of this great story of Joseph. May it speak to us powerfully of who you are and who you want us to be. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. One of the things that... Uh, every parent seems to do is to spend some time teaching your kids how to ride a bike. Anybody spend time doing that? Um, you know, when, uh, when our kids were little, we uh, got them all the proper equipment for bike riding, including the expensive bike helmet, which they put on, and we, we talked to them about riding with the helmet and then illustrated that because, you know, when you're riding around with your kids and 
and you're trying to teach them, you know, the pedal and steer, you know, running behind them and, and trying to teach them to watch where they're going. You know, we had a parking lot at this local school where we were teaching them and there was one pole in the middle of the parking lot and you know what happens, right? They just sort of gravitate right toward it and they fall off the bike and they bump their heads and, and, but they've got their helmet on so they learn the lesson that it's okay you know, that you can fall and get back up again. This is nothing like learning to ride a bike when I was a kid. Anybody else? I mean, when I was a kid, trips to the emergency room were a rite of passage. If you didn't go at least half a dozen times, uh, you really had not been a kid. You know, now we insulate them, and in many ways, you know, we wrap them up almost in bubble wrap to send them out. But back then, man, it was, it was raw. For example, when I was learning to ride my bike, I was given a used Schwinn, with a sissy bar, you know, and it had big tires in the back and a shock absorber in the back and a front fork. And, and curiously, it had a gear shift, like an actual gear shift right here on the middle bar, okay? And I want you to think about that. So this was in the days of Evil Knievel, right? So we all wanted to be Evil Knievel. So you'd ride your bike down the hill as fast as possible toward a ramp that was a piece of plywood set up on cinder blocks and hit that ramp and then hit with the back tire just like Evil Knievel but the shock bounced me off the thing threw me over the handlebars and that's how I got this scar on my forehead and it was so and it's now it's very prominent since the hair is no longer there to hide it and um, it just shines out there for everyone to see and I remember when I got that particular scar um, was going to the hospital, and I was so freaked out about getting the stitches, they put me in a straight jacket. That, that was my, I was a little wild back then, you know. So um, I, got, I got a scar on my left eyebrow from when neighbor kid, Michael Mayer, threw a rock at me in some property line dispute. Um, I have a scar on my left index finger from a hatchet because I was allowed to use a hatchet unsupervised at about age six, and uh, my aim was apparently not very good. And fortunately, the axe was very dull, so it did not chop my finger off. Um, this finger I broke in seminary. It is permanently bent. It had three pins put at it, playing softball when I should have been studying. And so now it is permanently bent. I had to wear a cast for six weeks and type my finals with a pencil in one hand and my fingers in the other. Now, I would guess if I asked you, you could probably point to a lot of scars, particularly those of you of a certain age, could point to a lot of scars that you have as well. You know, there are those kinds of scars, and there's a story that goes with every one of them. But there are also other scars that we don't see, right? Scars of trauma, scars of loss and pain from the past. We all carry them. They all have stories, and sometimes we tell those stories and we remember them with a smile, and sometimes those scars still hurt. When I read the story of Joseph, I think of it as a scar story. It's a story about a family and what families can do to one another. But it's also a story of God's redemptive power and love and his mission for the whole of creation. It's no coincidence, I think, that, that this story comes at the end of Genesis because in many ways it acts as kind of a bookend to the beginning 
and we see what God is doing, that God is making all things good in spite of human sin. Well, if you know this story, it happens there in Genesis 37 to 50. It's a long story, so that's why we didn't read the whole thing this morning. There's a lot to it, um, but it's also part of this longer story. Now, you'll recall that Glenn last week talked about Abraham. Abraham was an old man. His wife, Sarah, was barren, and through God promises that through them, this great family that is going to come, and there's going to be a great nation that comes from this family. But we learned very early on that this is kind of a dysfunctional family because it's a human family. So so Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah have twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the older one because he comes out first, but it says that Jacob came out grasping his brother's heel. Now, in the ancient world, if you were the oldest son you were next in line to be the patriarch. So when it came time for inheritance, you got two-thirds of the inheritance while everybody else split the other third. This was the way of ensuring the family line would continue. And so here is Esau primed to take over. He is a hunter. He's a manly man. And there is Jacob who was more interested in the food network and things like that. And he's hung out in the tents and, and did things like that. Well, through a lot of machinations, we learned that Jacob is kind of a trickster. And he tricks his brother out of selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. And then when it's time for the father Isaac to give the blessing, Jacob disguises himself as Esau because Isaac is blind and apparently not very bright. And so he goes in and and feels the uh, wool. He puts wool over his arms and he thinks it's Esau and he gives him the blessing. And Jacob cheats his brother out of the blessing, after which he has to run for his life. And he runs back to the era of Haran, which, remember, is where Abraham came from. And he goes back there because people in those days tended to marry within the family. And he meets his cousin, uh, Rachel, falls in love with her. But her, her father, who is actually Jacob's uncle, is kind of a trickster himself. See, this kind of runs in the family. And so he says, well, you can have Rachel if you work for me for seven years. So for seven years, Jacob works for Laban, his uncle. And then finally, on the wedding day, there was this very strange story about the fact that there was an older daughter, also Leah. And somehow, in the middle of the night, when it was supposed to be Jacob's wedding night with Rachel, the Bible says in this very, very profoundly simple and shocking way that in the morning when Jacob woke up, There was Leah, not Rachel. It probably had something to do with veils and heavy drinking, but there it was, the wrong woman. And he goes back to his uncle and says, look, I I was going to marry Rachel. He says, well, we don't marry off the younger before the older, so you're going to have to work another seven years, which he does. Now, Rachel is barren. Leah is fertile. When Leah stops giving children, then she gives him two of her servants, and they begin to have children until such time that there are, there are all these sons of Jacob. Rachel, however, is barren until finally God blesses her and she is able to have two sons, the first of whom is Joseph. And so Joseph is a favorite of Jacob because he comes from his favorite wife. The younger, again, just like Jacob, is favored over the older. In fact, it says that Jacob gave Joseph a robe with long sleeves. 
Now, we are really conditioned because of the musical to think of Joseph as having a coat of many colors. That's not actually what the text says. It says that it's a coat with long sleeves. Now, that's code language in the ancient world for being treated as royalty because if one has long sleeves like this, it means that one is not expected to work very much. So you can imagine how this goes over with the other brothers. Now you have sibling rivalry, just like you had in the previous generation, just like you had going all the way back to Adam with uh, Cain and Abel. This dysfunctional family pattern continues. Joseph not only is treated differently, he also, well, he likes to voice whatever it is that is coming to him. He is a 17-year-old boy who has no unspoken thought, and so... Uh, he has dreams that come from God. And he says to his older brothers, hey, by the way, I had a dream the other day when, uh, you know, and I was, I was a shock of wheat and, and all of you bowed down to me. Oh, and, and I, was, I was a planet or whatever and, and all of you bowed down to me. And, and there's this series of dreams and the brothers despise him. And you want to say to Joseph as you read the text, just shut up, <laughs> be quiet. Wear the robe around dad, you know, be cool with your brothers. And then there's this story that, that Jessica read for us where um, Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brothers because apparently they were slackers. And so they're out there in the field and they're tending the sheep and they go out and they see Joseph coming and they're like, okay, now's our chance. Now's our chance to get rid of him once and for all. And they decide not to kill him, but rather to throw him in a cistern a pit, and wait to see what will happen with him. The older brother realizes this is a problem, wants to come back and rescue him later, but before he can do that, the other brothers decide to sell him off to some Ishmaelites who are on their way to Egypt, and they sell him into slavery. And they take the robe that father had made for him, and they tear it up, and they dip it in goat's blood, and they take it back to our father and said, see, he's been eaten by a wild animal because this was the days before CSI, Jerusalem. And Jacob thinks his beloved son is dead. Instead, he's been shipped off to Egypt in chains. And that's a tragic story. But notice what happens next. Joseph is sold to an Egyptian a noble named Potiphar. And Joseph is so effective in his slavery. Rather than pouting, rather than, than seeing himself as a victim, Joseph begins to work, and he puts himself into the work. And he works so hard that he becomes the head of Potiphar's household in charge of the whole household. That is not unusual in the ancient world for slaves to be elevated to that, to that sort of status. And here is Joseph with that status. And he is young, and he is handsome, and... Then the sex scandal happens when Potiphar's wife sees Joseph and thinks he's pretty hot, and so she decides that she wants to sleep with him. But Joseph, because he is an Israelite, because he is faithful to God, refuses to do so. So she accuses him of trying to rape her. And Joseph, who was elevated, is once again thrown into a pit, into prison. But even in prison, Joseph thrives. 
he becomes so useful to the jailer that he's put in charge of all the other prisoners, and he begins to interpret their dreams. He's a dreamer, like his father Jacob was a dreamer. And he interprets these dreams, and people begin to be successful because of these dreams. And eventually, over time, over a period of years of doing this, Joseph's ability to interpret dreams comes known to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh has disturbing dreams about skinny cows eating fat cows and, and things like that. And Joseph realizes that this is a dream about a coming famine, which is pretty common in Egypt. This famine is going to last seven years. And so the Pharaoh sees the potential in Joseph that Potiphar had seen, that the jailer had seen, and so he elevates him to be in charge of all the grain distribution for the land of Egypt. Once again, he is given a robe with long sleeves, given a position of responsibility. The famine comes. And there in the land of Canaan, Jacob and his sons are beginning to starve. And so they know that Egypt is the breadbasket of the ancient world. It was even in the time of the Romans. And so he sends the brothers down to Egypt to buy grain so that they might survive. And they come to Egypt and what they don't realize is the one who is selling them the grain that they need to survive is actually their brother, Joseph. This is the moment in the story where we think to ourselves, what would I do if I were Joseph? What would I do? Would I seek revenge because now I'm in a position of power? Would I claim victimhood? Would I want to, to pour myself out and say that, see, you, you treated me so badly and I'm, I'm a victim. Look what's happened to me. I'm, I'm in this terrible position. But he's not in a terrible position. It reminds me of this Calvin and Hobbes, Hobbes cartoon, one of my favorites ever. I don't know if you can read this. But Calvin basically says to Hobbes, nothing I do is my fault. My family is dysfunctional and my parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive, functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept any responsibility for my actions. I love the culture of victimhood. And Hobbes says to him, someone, one of us, needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water, right? We think about playing the victim, and Joseph certainly had the opportunity to do so. But he refuses to take revenge here. And he refuses to play the victim. Instead, in Genesis 45, first few verses, we read this. Joseph could no longer control himself in front of all his attendants, so he declared, everyone leave now. So no one stayed with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians and Pharaoh's household heard him. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father really still alive? His brothers couldn't respond because they were terrified before him. 
Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they moved closer. The text doesn't say this, but I imagine very cautiously. He said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. Now don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me before you to save lives. We've already had two years of famine in the land, and there are five years left without planting or harvesting. God sent me before you to make sure you'd survive and to rescue your lives in this amazing way. You didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household, and ruler of the whole land of Egypt. Later on in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good, to save a numerous people as he is now doing. One of my professors at Asbury, David Siemens, says this is 50-20 vision. Genesis 50-20 vision. Because you see, Joseph, throughout his entire life, looks at the events of the things that has happened to him. And he doesn't wallow in his brokenness or his victimhood. He does not plot revenge. Instead, he sees where God might be at work, how God might use him, even in the midst of pain and suffering, for the mission God has for him and for his people. 5020 Vision believes that God made all things good in the beginning and that God will continue to make all things good despite the presence of human evil. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, God is at work. It's an amazing way to think about it, isn't it? I'm always struck by that part of Joseph's story. Many of us have dealt with family trauma, abandonment, brokenness, abuse, victimhood. It's easy for us to think that God may have visited these things on us to punish us in some way or to teach us some kind of lesson. I don't believe that happens. Joseph sees it differently. He says, I, I know that this was wrong. He said, what you did was wrong. And I, we can't see God as being the author of evil, but at the same time, God is able to take that which is evil and still work his purpose for good. He's able to deal with scars and help us see them through a different lens, through the lens of 50-20 vision. How do we get that kind of vision? It doesn't come easily. I would argue that it comes from knowing what God is up to. I think Joseph knew this instinctively, that there was a larger purpose in mind. See, when we live our lives, we kind of think that that we're the center of things, and so we tend to think about how everything affects us rather than thinking of the big picture of what God might be up to in the world. We call this sort of thinking eschatology, looking back from the end to understand the present. Joseph understood that God was 
up to something. The book of Genesis tells us all the way through that God has been up to something. When human sin distorted and broke creation, God has been up to the task of making it new again, of doing all things and making all things good despite human evil. It's a long view, a long view that sees that in the end, God is the one who wins. God's purposes will not be short-circuited. That forgiveness and new life are possible. And that even in the midst of terror and horror, God is at work. We can see our lives through that lens and begin to see that even our scars remind us that healing is possible and that God will make all things new. This week, when I was at um, the New Room Conference, Ken Collins, who's a great Wesley scholar, was talking about the current cultural situation. You know, we look at our culture and we see all the brokenness, and it seems like things are, are really out of control. We see riots and brokenness and, and our political situation and terrorism and all the other things, and it's easy for us to look at that and say, God, where are you? What is happening? We look at what it means to be people of faith, and we realize that that is becoming less and less a popular thing to do, that, that you sitting here on a Sunday morning is actually a subversive act in the midst of this culture. In fact, he quoted a Roman Catholic cardinal, Cardinal George, who said, I expect to die in my bed. I expect that my successor will die in prison, and I expect that his successor will die as a martyr in the public square. That is a hard reality to imagine when we have enjoyed Christendom for so long. But Ken Collins said that we have to remember how story ends, that in the end, it is God who will make all things new as he put it to us in a moment that sent a chill up my spine, he says, remember, God bats last, and God is a slugger. When we remember that, it makes 50-20 vision possible. It makes it possible for us to remember that no matter what has been done to us, God is still at work, and that we can see it through that lens. We can see what others have done to us, and we can forgive because we know how much God has forgiven us. We see that God's intention is to bring his whole creation to wholeness and new life. And we can tell our scar stories as ways of providing healing and hope for others. We talk about the scar on our soul. We can wallow in it, or we can see how it has made us whole because God has been present and made healing possible. One of the ways we do that is through prayer through offering ourselves to God and praying for that kind of vision, that 50-20 vision, 
that we lay before God the hurts and scars in our lives and we, we say to God, please take these and show me. Show me the promise. As Paul said, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that does not mean that God just waves a magic wand and makes it all good. It means that God's purposes will win out regardless of what the circumstances look like in the present. I've seen this in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others with whom I've walked over the course of tragedy and terror and brokenness. God is still at work if we will only see it. That our scars give us meaning and remind us of God's presence in powerful and unexpected ways. You know, it's interesting that when you read this story in light of the gospel, that there's a reason that when Jesus rose from the dead, he still had the scars. Still had the scars in his hands and his feet and his side. Touch them, he said. This is who I am. But the resurrected Jesus, the Son of God, chose to retain the scars when he was made new again. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, puts it this way, and I'm going to read this because he puts it better than I ever could have. He says, presumably Jesus could have had any resurrected body he wanted, and yet he chose one identifiable mainly by scars that could be seen and touched. Why? I believe the story of Easter would be incomplete without those scars on the hands, the feet, and the side of Jesus. When human beings fantasize, we dream of pearly straight teeth, and wrinkle-free skin and sexy ideal shapes. We dream of an unnatural state, the perfect body. But for Jesus, being confined, confined in a skeleton and human skin was the unnatural state. The scars are to him an emblem of life on our planet, a permanent reminder of those days of confinement and suffering. I take hope in Jesus' scars. From the perspective of heaven, they represent the most horrible event that has ever happened in the history of the universe, the crucifixion. Easter turned into a memory. Because of Easter, I can hope that the tears we shed, the blows we receive, the emotional pain, the heartache over lost friends and loved ones, all of these will become memories like Jesus' scars. Scars never completely go away, but neither do they hurt any longer. That, my friends, is 50-20 vision. I don't know what scars you have on you today. We all carry them because we are living outside the garden. We are living in a broken world. None of us gets out alive None of us gets out without some level of bumps and bruises and brokenness. The question is, what will we do? Will we trust God? The God who works all things together for good. Will we see 
those scars as opportunities for us to remember, to forgive, to be forgiven, and to remember that if it were not for God, we would be lost. Joseph was able to see life through the lens of God's mission. May it be so for us too. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And let us pray. Lord, we are thankful for this great story. We identify with Joseph. Success and failure. Being treated unfairly lies and brokenness and family dysfunction. We carry those scars from our past and maybe even our present. And Lord, while you do not visit these things upon us, they are the result of our brokenness and our broken world, yet you are able to take that brokenness and human evil and somehow continue to make all things good according to your purpose. Help us, Lord, to to see the vision. The vision that is so clear to us in Jesus' scars that by his stripes we are healed. By his scars we are made new. Lord, we live in a world where hurt is a daily occurrence. Racial tension and injustice, terror, Violence, strife, division, brokenness is everywhere we turn. And it would be easy for us to retreat and lick our wounds. But like Joseph, you call us to be available to bring salvation to your people, to be agents of grace and forgiveness, and welcome, and new life. Let us not shy away from that mission. Give us the vision. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.